If you want to open up your uh, your Bible or your iPad or phone to Psalm 36, and the words will be up on the screen either way. Psalm uh, 70, verse 4 says, May all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. And may those who love your salvation say evermore, God is great. We hope that after we look at God's words today, that's, that's our screen, is that God is great. And we rejoice. So let's pray for God to do that in us. Oh, great God, it is because of your great salvation that we are here today and we look to your everlasting word. Use it to show us Christ, your everlasting word that became flesh to save us. After uh, this time, Father, it is our prayer that all of us would rejoice and say that you are great. So do that during this time. And we ask in Christ's name. Amen. So although uh, I am not a parent and there's many in the room who are don't have children, uh, many of you are parents of lots of children. It's a common theme in our congregation that people have lots of children. We thank God for that. And so although some of us don't have children, we've all been we all have been a child of a parent. So this will make sense to all of us. Imagine, you know, when you do have a child. And they're a toddler and you're, you're playing in the yard and you have to run inside to to grab something, grab some water, grab anything. And you come outside and you see, you know, in these in your yard, your child is in the middle of the yard, just staring blankly into the forest. And you're wondering, what's he what's he doing? You step outside and there's a bear on the wood line. Right. So in that moment, you got you have to save your child. Nothing is going to stop you from grabbing that toddler and bringing him to safety, right? It doesn't matter. Bushes, mud, rocks, other, I mean, nothing is going to stop you from reaching your child, right? This is an imperfect, but I think good example of what the steadfast love of God is like, right? God's steadfast love is his unswerving and his unstoppable mercy and faithfulness to his people. He is committed to his people. He's faithful to accomplish everything that he's promised to his covenant people. And as one uh, Hebrew scholar puts it, the goodness and the mercy of God do not follow us around like a like a nice puppy dog as we leave. No, the goodness and the mercy of God gallop after us like a celestial stallion staying hot on our heels. This is what the steadfast love of God is like to his people. And this is what Psalm 36 is all about. How precious is it, brothers and sisters, that the righteous God of the universe, who has no beginning, who has no end, decided to never cease his steadfast love to you and to me, his enemies. So without going any further, let's read Psalm 36 to the choir master of David, the servant of the Lord. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes, for he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. Your steadfast, O Lord. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. 
Your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house. And you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. Oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen, and they are thrust down, unable to rise. We thank God for his word. Psalm 36 is this comparison between the empty deceitfulness of the wicked and the steadfast love of the Lord. And as my wife said, as we were talking about it, it seems like the psalm starts and then changes altogether. And it's like a new song. And it's true. It does feel that way. But it's broken into three parts. There's the character of the wicked. There's the character of God. And then there's a prayer. And so we're going to look at it uh, in those sections and then reflect a little bit. And we'll end our time together. So number one is the character of wicked in verses one through four. And I just want to make this statement. This description of the wicked is not about God's people who have moral flaws. This is about people who hate God, who do not know him, who loathe God, who are not upright in heart because they do not know him. Right. So these are people outside of his covenant love. So verse one says that transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart and there's no fear of God before his eyes. A good rendering in in what it's in most translations is David is saying transgression of the wicked. The transgression of the wicked is speaking to my heart that there's no fear of God in his eyes. So that's what David is saying here. The actions of the wicked tell me that there is no fear of God in his eyes. The wicked actions of wicked people prove there is no fear of God in their eyes before his eyes. And so verse two, it says, for he flatters himself in his own eyes and that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. A wicked person is puffed up and stubborn in his hard heart. This person is arrogant. The wicked person is arrogantly, overconfidently safe that he's in control, that nothing is wrong and what he feels is good. He can do and there's nothing wrong with that. It doesn't matter. There's this arrogance and this puff upness, if I can say it that way. They think they think that they're wise and they're evil. They say what's good is bad and what's bad is good, and it has no regard. There's no measurement. Ultimately, they do what makes them feel good, regardless of what God says. They don't care about what God says, and in that way, they're arrogant in their self, in their stubbornness. Verse three: the words of the wicked man's mouth are trouble and deceit. That's every word that comes to their mouth is altogether aimed at evil. There's an angle towards evil. There's an angle to cover up evil. There's an angle to justify bad things, to justify evil things. It says that he has ceased to act wisely and to do good. And the takeaway is to be wise is to do what's good. And God says what is good. So to be wise is to do what God says. The wicked man doesn't act wisely. They don't do good. And then verse four. 
He plots trouble while on his bed, and he sets himself in a way that's not good, and he does not reject evil. So not only does the wicked person just not do good, not only are they not wise, but they put themselves in the path of evil. They plan and meditate in being in a path of trouble. They don't reject evil, right? Not only do they not do what's uh, good, but they don't reject what is bad. They pursue it. They pursue it. So the wicked have no fear of God. They're arrogant in their confidence to not be found out, to not have to face the consequences of their evil actions. The words they speak are trouble. They do not do good. They don't reject evil. They're not wise. And you may know one of the most popular verses on uh, the fear of God or wisdom is what? Proverbs 1.7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge or wisdom. And so we must ask, what is it to fear God? And what is wisdom? Well, the fear of the Lord is the response of faith. The beginning of the fear of God is to know who he is. He is holy, right? So to not fear God is to not know who he is. It's to not care who he is. Is this not what happened with Adam and Eve when they were tempted to distrust who God is? And therefore they challenged what he said was good. And they did what they thought was good over and against what God said was good. And as a result, all of creation is corrupt and is depraved. The earth groans and there's not a single person who does good. We're all by nature wicked men. And we come to this text with guilt, thinking of the ways that we kind of mimic some of these things. That we're not morally upright, but yet we're not condemned like the wicked. Why are we not condemned like the wicked? Well, moving from this description of the character of the wicked, there's this shift to describe the character of God. And not to give it away, but I'm, I'm pretty positive that the character of God has something to do why his people are not condemned like the wicked men. So moving on to part two, and this is a majority of the sermon, is this part two, the character of God. It's a good point to spend a lot of time on, the character of God. So verse five, it says, after describing the wicked, right, he says, just changes altogether. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens and your faithfulness to the clouds. Steadfast love is God's mercy. It's, a, it's God pulling wicked people out of wickedness and setting his love to them. Right. It's his mercy. It's his love. And so in this verse, there's this repetition, steadfast love and faithfulness in heavens and clouds. But I want to speak a moment about steadfast love in Psalm five or seven. This is what. It says, but I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house and I will bow down toward your holy temple in fear of you. In Psalm 17, we see this wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior, to those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. So notice how God's steadfast love benefits wonderful things for his people. It's not just some arbitrary characteristic that we get to praise. No. His steadfast love results in wonderful, amazing, merciful things for his people. There's an entering of God's house in fear of him and finding a refuge from their enemies as a result of God's steadfast love. So do you see how God's character results in him acting on behalf of his people who do not deserve his mercy and his love? 
But back to the text, right? Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends. It reaches to the heavens. It's limitless. God's steadfast love, which results in so many good things for us, is endless. It doesn't run out. And he says, your faithfulness to the clouds. And this word faithfulness, yes, it is that God is faithful. But as I was even looking at this word, it also is God's firmness and his steadiness to never change. God is faithful in and of himself. He does not change. He does not change in who he is or what he promises. He's faithful to complete all his promises. And in his steadfast love, which is limitless, he will never change. So him deciding to be steadfast to deciding to place his steadfast love on the people will never change. Right. That's this. His faithfulness is to the clouds. So not only is his mercy endless, but he will never change in being merciful. And this is who God is. This is wonderful news for us. Moving into verse six, your righteousness is like the mountains of God. and Your judgments are like the great deep. And this righteousness means that you're right. You're perfect. God is upright and he's just. He's just and he's equitable. And as it says, your righteousness is like the mountains. The whole thing about the mountains of God, it's just meaning that these great mountains. Right. So what's being communicated is that God's righteousness, his justice, his uh, his equability, if I could say it that way. Are like the mountains, they're ginormous, it's immovable, it's inflexible. His righteousness is immovable. He is not changing. He will always do good. He will always be just. He will always do what is right and good. It's who he is. In Psalm 97, too, it says the clouds are thick and darkness all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. It's who he is. Like the mountains, it won't move and it will not flex. Sometimes if it profits us, we'll flex on doing the right thing. That's not God. He is inflexible. He will not move. He will always do the right thing. And he says that your judgments are like the great deep. And this means his decisions, right? God is going to do, he's going to decide things. He's going to make decisions. He's going to do good deeds. So his decisions, his judgments are like the great deep. Um, if you think about what is being said here, not only is his steadfast love limitless, right? He is faithful to never change. His righteousness is inflexible and his judgments What he decides is based upon who he is and his decisions are like the great deep. So to try to put this into perspective, if you the sunlight right shining into the ocean can only go maybe like two football fields length. And that's in the right situation. Imagine how vast the ocean is. Right. It's very mysterious. Light can only travel so far and it's pointless. Right. So what's being uh, communicated here? Is the mysteriousness, the vastness of God's decisions, right? His sovereignty is great, and he he know he owes no explanation to us for why he does what he does. But if he did explain why he does what he does and how he does it and who he is, we wouldn't understand. We are incapable of under of understanding his ways. They're far too great. 
They're vast. They're like the great deep. But we do know that he is all wise, that he is righteous, and that he is limitless in steadfast love. So before we move any further, let's just consider this and just try to bring everything together that just happened in this psalm from the wicked and into a description of God. And so beginning with the wicked and the evil of the world, we can easily become overwhelmed and confused with the disorder and the confusion of events in this world. And when that happens, we call to mind the judgments of God and his government of the world, which are compared with the highest praise to the vast, mysterious abyss of the ocean. They're great and they're incomprehensible to us, but all God's decisions flow from who he is, righteous. And so as we consider the infinite greatness of his judgments, our hearts are filled with adoration and our cares and our our sorrows are swallowed up in his infinite, good, merciful, faithful, righteous judgments. Now, notice I didn't say that when we consider the greatness of his judgments, that our hearts are filled with understanding and our hearts are settled. No, our hearts are. Our unsettled hearts and our sorrows and doubts are swallowed up in the goodness and the greatness of his vast and mysterious providential decisions that are based upon who he is. Righteous. So immeasurable, immovable and incomprehensible. Calvin says this, no matter how great the wickedness and the depth of corruption there is in the world and among men. And though it seems as though wickedness is overflowing the earth, yet still greater is the depth of God's providence, which by which he is righteously disposing and governing all things. So it is rightly described at the end of verse six. Man and beast, you save, O Lord. This God that we just spoke about, what's now being said is that all things exist by his goodness. All things exist by his goodness. This is about his common grace, common grace on all of creation. All creatures, man and animals exist by the goodness and the mercy of God. Animals are provided for by God. The birds are fed. How much more does he mercifully provide for all humanity? He he protects, he feeds and he drink, he gives drink, which leads us to verse seven. As it begins to narrow down, how precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. If he is generous and merciful in that way to all mankind, how much more is he generous in much more special ways to those who know him as Abba, Father? So it says the children of man. Take refuge in this children of man. It is a general term describing all humanity and specifically the lower of society. So this verse is talking about the special fatherly care and protection of his own people. But as we sit here today, this side of uh, the life cross and resurrection of Jesus, here is my assessment of what's being communicated here because of what follows in verses eight and verses nine, the lowest What's being communicated in this verse, right? The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. The lowest, most vulnerable, weakest, most vile, ugliest, white, black, brown, red, big, small, pagan, secular, all humanity without distinction. 
may find refuge in God because of his mercy. Because of his mercy. And so why has God made it that many of us wicked people may find refuge in him? We all have turned away and we've chosen what is good in our own eyes and we have not been as holy as God is holy. So why are we not like the wicked ones described here? Why do we know God? Why do we reject evil? Why do we pursue what's good and we act wisely? Why do we contemplate the faithfulness of God on our beds at night and not plan evil? Again, no, we're not morally impure, but we know God. And he leads us in the everlasting way, and he does not give us over completely to our own devices. So why do we find a refuge in God? Like uh, verse 7 describes, like little chicks under their mother's wings. Because of his steadfast love. Says, how precious is your steadfast love, O God. His people find in him a place of refuge because, verse 8, he leads his people to feast in the abundance of his house. God Almighty leads his people to drink from the river of his delights. Now, this certainly denote uh, is, is meaning physical provision, sure. But the wicked of the world glutton themselves with God's provisions of food and wealth, and they're empty and starving and spiritually dead. So something better is being communicated here regarding God's people feasting in his house and drinking from the river of his delights. This food and drink, right, it's substance, right? It's what we need to live. And the abundance of his house and the rivers is that God's resources never run out, and they completely satisfy. Okay, yes, I can see that. And in the old covenant, God's favor was in part represented by his physical blessing upon Israel, right? Those that feared him received his favor and his blessing and they had what they needed. But even those realities pointed to greater things than earthly prosperity, which perishes tomorrow. It's here today and and gone tomorrow. More than physical substance do we need, though, brothers and sisters. What we need to know is how holy and perfect God is. That we can't see his face and live. We need to be shown how evil and corrupt we are. We need to see that God's law as God intends it to be. It must crush us. And then verse 9. God must, in his steadfast love, show us how gluttonous we are towards evil and lead us to feast upon the only one who satisfies a thirsty and hungry dead soul. In God's house, his children eat and hunger no more. They drink and they thirst no more because, verse 9, they drink and eat of the fountain of life. In John 6, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall hunger no more, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. And then in John 4, Jesus, remember, he meets the lady at the well and asks her for a drink of water. And she's going crazy because a Jewish man is asking a Samaritan woman for water. And he says, if you knew the gift of God 
in the one who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink. You would ask of him and he would give you living water. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, is the fountain of life. He is the fountain of life. Now consider, though, how all of the Bible, God's steadfast love and his keeping and steadfast love for Israel, especially. He God, excuse me, God has been faithful to his people. And every time that he acts in mercy towards Israel points us to a greater mercy that he will have on all his people. Right. It all pointed us to Christ. Jesus Christ is the summit of God's steadfast love. In other words, all the ways God manifested his steadfast love towards Israel in the Old Testament showed us Christ. Let's just consider a few that we've even thought about in Genesis and maybe a few more. He covers Adam and Eve with animal skin and doesn't make them run around naked and ashamed. He covers their shame. Calling Abraham out of paganism and promising to save the world through his offspring. Providing the ram to Abraham to be sacrificed in the place of Isaac. Parting the Red Sea so that Israel could escape Egyptian exile. Giving Moses the law and the sacrificial system. Providing manna from heaven for his people in the wilderness. Moses strikes the rock and it pours out water while they're thirsty in the desert. David defeats Goliath. God doesn't let Assyria crush Judah. And on and on and on until King Jesus is born in a stable. He's acting mercifully to his people in time and in space. And he is being faithful to accomplish redemption. All because Christ, who is the bread of life and who is living water, would come. That all who would feast on him and drink of him would know God and would be made right with him forever. The fountain of life. And we'll consider more of this at the end. And then he says, in your light, do we see light? Evil and wickedness is darkness. This is the testimony of Scripture. God is light. We are not God, and we are certainly wickedness. We are not light. We are darkness. But we become children of light because of the steadfast love of God. Here's a few verses. I just, it just magnifies this point in John 1. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. In John 8, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. First John 1, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Ephesians 5, 5, 8, for at one time, you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. First Peter 2, 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you, mo- you may proclaim the, excell- the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. Once children of darkness... One with wickedness, destined for death, gluttonous, idolatrous, filled with the world and empty of goodness, separated from God. No light. But how precious is the steadfast love of God. And through Jesus, Israel's great light 
Darkness is going to be done away with completely. Isaiah 60 verse 20. Your sun will no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself. For the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended. Of course, he's speaking there at the second coming of the Lord, when all of darkness would be done away with. So as we move forward in finishing up this psalm, in verses 10 through 12, is a prayer. David lifts up a prayer. And in verse 10, he says, continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Those who know God only know him because of his mercy. Amen. And David writes this prayer that God would prolong his mercy to his people. All the way to the end. And he says, continue your righteousness to the upright of heart. To be upright of heart is to know God. That's what's communicated here. It's, it's, again, that repetition. Continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright of heart. There is no uh, tension here where we should say, well, am I upright of heart? If you know God in Jesus Christ, you are upright of heart. It is a gift of God to be upright of heart, to know him and to know what's good, to know what's bad. So he says, continue your righteousness to the upright of heart. Because God is righteous, he defends his people. He preserves his people. He disciplines his people. He vindicates their innocent. He avenges their wrongs and he restrains their enemies. This is what it means for God to be righteous. Again, because he's steadfast in love, it results in our salvation. Because he is righteous, it results in justice. It results in our protection and our preservation and our discipline. Of his people, right? So David is praying that God would continue his steadfast love and his righteousness to us. And I promise you that that's a prayer that God is still answering today. For we're in this room because God has continued his steadfast love. And then verse 11. He says, let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. And this arrogance isn't like a personal pride. This arrogance is the arrogance of the wicked. So here we have the foot of the wicked and the hand of the wicked, if you will. The foot of arrogance. Remember he talked about how the wicked person flattered himself, was so arrogant and confident. So let not the the foot in the hand of the arrogantly wicked person. This, This kind of imagery is like a tyrant king who just treads underfoot all of his enemies, all of those who are low and poor. And he says, let not the wicked do that to me. Right. And so he prays that God would sustain his people uh, from harm and hatred. Right. Let not wicked come upon me. And at the same time, that God would continue his righteousness, meaning that if God were to allow wicked wickedness to prosper for a time, he prays that the persecution would not cause those to know God, those who know God to wander from enjoying the steadfast love of God. Right. Let not the hand of the wicked drive me away. So, God, if you do allow the wicked to come, let it not make your people wander from the joy and the peace and the the rejoicing that is knowing you as father. And then verse 12, there the evildoers lie fallen. They're thrust down and unable to rise. Where the workers of iniquity are, there is where they will receive their punishment. Where they are is where they will receive their punishment. I don't really 
think that there needs to be much more said. It's just like wherever God decides to act justly on wickedness, there is where they're going to lie undone, judged, condemned forever. The punishment of the wicked is sure because God is righteous. So where they are is where they will be destroyed now or later because God is righteous. So that concludes kind of the, the exposition through this psalm. And now I just want to three reflections or meditations from this psalm. And the first one is the primary difference between the wicked and the upright in heart is that the upright in heart know God. I think it's a big deal because what makes us different from the world is not our morality. It's not primarily our morality, but it's the steadfast love of our God. No religion, no, no, yeah, no religion in this world has a God who leaves heaven to die for his people. It is the steadfast love of our God that makes us different. It can't be our morality and our works that ultimately make the difference because we've all admitted that our hearts are still so frail. They're still so flippant. We're still so morally flawed and we do hate that. But our uprightness and our walking in the way of righteousness springs forth from God's steadfast love to us. It's God bringing us from death to life that leads us in the way of everlasting life. And so I'll say it another way. The steadfast love of God is the, store, is the source of holiness. The source of holiness and godly living is the steadfast love of God. And that's a good thing. It's a good thing that holiness and godliness doesn't depend on you and what you can work up in yourself. But it's this. When we show up here and we realize how much that we are still so frail and fickle and sinful, but Christ is a great savior, that we are then motivated to live holy lives, to love our wives and our husbands like Christ loves the church, to love our neighbors, to work hard, to have integrity. To enjoy the steadfast love of God. All of that is from him. And so what makes you different from the world? Again, it's not that you have a better way of living. It's that you have eternal life. The wicked are going to receive eternal condemnation no matter how unpunished or prosperous they seem in this world. I think all of us are all the time lamenting. The corruption that seems to control this world, to control governments, to control laws, to control all these things. We're always lamenting the corruption. But those who know God receive from the fountain of life and they've been made right with God forever. And he will sanctify us. Hebrews 10, 14. This is our hope, right? Not that God may set everything right while we're still alive. And we enjoy all the comforts that we have for this for so long. That's not our hope. Our hope is in the house of God. We, his people, feast on Christ. Because of the steadfast love of God, we have redemption through the blood of Christ and the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Because of the steadfast love of God, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Because of the steadfast love of God, we know what is good, what is right, and what is pure. 
because of the steadfast love of God, we know what is evil, what is wrong, and what is not pure. Because of the steadfast love of God, that he will never stop having towards us. We heard the words of truth, the gospel of salvation, and believed in the Son of God. And we have been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we require possession of it. Amen. And so to move on to the next reflection, number two is on prayer. Prayer is a gift from God, and it's used to sustain our faith. So notice how David in this psalm, he asked God to continue to be who he is and to continue to do what he does. God, continue your steadfast love to us. Continue your righteousness to us. We're here today because God answered that prayer. So may your, your people know you because you've been merciful to them, right? So continue to be merciful to them is what David is praying. Your people are upright in heart because you have been steadfast in love. Continue to be steadfast in your love and your mercy to your people, God. It's okay to uh, not have original words of your own when you're praying. Right? It's okay to say, pray for grace, pray for mercy, pray for faith, pray for love, pray for strength. Pray for wisdom, pray for discernment, pray that we all would bear fruit. I mean, these are all things that God said that he's going to do in us. And it is good for us to ask God to do what he said he's going to do. If anything, it makes us more sure that he will do it. Because as we pray those things over the next 10, 20, 30 and 40 years, I'm sure we're going to look back. And as we're praying those things, we're praising God for the way he's kept. He's done those things already. So we're continuing to ask God to do what he's always done. Continue his steadfast love and righteousness towards us to grow us in faith, to grow us in love for one another, to teach us how to bear one another's burdens, to teach us to not grow tired of doing good for one another. He will answer all those prayers in this service. We have intentional prayers, right? So let's say you're going to go hang out with a few guys or a few women or you're going to have some people. It's OK to say, hey, before we start our time, we're going to give up a prayer of thanksgiving because you don't want to start, you know, get together. And all of a sudden someone prays and they pray for literally everything for 35 minutes. Right. If you want to get together and you hang out, offer a offer a prayer of thanksgiving. God, we thank you that we get to enjoy good things and we thank you that you've saved us in Christ. Amen. Or maybe you just. You're with someone, you want to be encouraged, lift up a prayer of praise. Father, we praise you that we don't know everything, but you do. We praise you that although we're scared, uh, you're not. I mean, these things are good and they remind us of who God is and what he's done and that he's going to continue to be who he is and do what he does. So prayer is a gift from God used to sustain our faith. But of course, we don't have to make it as complicated as we've had. So. In life, it's okay to pray short, pointed prayers. And then number three, to end our time together, to, con to conclude our time together, being united with Christ is receiving from the fountain of life. Being united to Christ is receiving from the fountain of life. And I'm going to read here. I just want you to listen from the Gospel of John. 
chapter 6. Right, so Jesus has fed the 5,000. He's walked on water. And then he begins this discourse. And the Pharisees said to him, what must we do to, sorry, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answers, answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. And so they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus then said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. And they said to him, well, sir, give us this bread, all, uh, sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. And then later in verses 53 Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat of my flesh, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. And of course, after people heard this, they did not like it and they left. Right. Verse 60 said, verse 66 says, after this, many of his disciples turned back and they no longer walked with him. Because Jesus, the Son of God, is telling people that you got to eat and drink me, right? They're like, this is too hard. And this, this just got weird and we're leaving. So he looks to the disciples, right? Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to leave? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. The word, he was right. Peter was right that he had the words of eternal life. As a matter of fact, Jesus is the words of eternal life become flesh to save us. He is eternal life. He doesn't just contain the words. He wasn't just speaking the words of eternal life. He was telling them, I am eternal life. I am eternal life. Right? The word of truth that sanctifies has conquered death and it has been risen for our salvation. The word of truth, the one that was in the beginning, the one that was God and was with God, became flesh to save us. And so, of course, Jesus is not speaking literally. No one cut Jesus up and ate him and drank his blood. He was using physical objects to communicate a spiritual meaning, right? In verse 35, he says that anyone who believes in him shall not hunger and thirst no more. Right? His body and his blood represent his atoning death. The blood of the new covenant poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. The upright in heart are the ones who feast in the house of Zion. We never thirst. We never grow hungry. You go to God and you're ashamed. But you go to God confident knowing that there is nothing that you do or don't do that gives you confidence before your father. It is all the work of Christ. So started the service this morning. I'm, I'm, I'm bowing my head, knowing how unworthy I am, knowing I have no reason to ask of God to do anything for me, but knowing because of his steadfast love, he desires that I come to him and ask him for everything. 
And he loves to answer his children's prayers for for more mercy and more grace and more understanding and more wisdom and more love for God. The upright in heart. We, there's no limit. We feast in the house of Zion. Never thirst no more. Never hunger anymore. So receiving eternal life is union with Christ. Is trusting in Christ. His life and his death in your place. And it's represented and displayed here at this table. Union with Christ is salvation. Christ is the steadfast love of God. He is justification. He is sanctification. And he is glory. This table is all of that. And it's a promise. And to quote our brother uh, Chad Bird. This is what this table is a promise of. The goodness and the mercy of Jesus will stay hot on our heels and hound us down all the way to the gates of heaven and into the arms of our waiting and smiling heavenly father. Let's pray together. Father, we we give you praise for you are great. You are a God of steadfast love and mercy. And you have poured out all of our sins on Christ Jesus. And you have made us your own. You have adopted us as your children. And we come to receive from you and to feast at this table in the house of Zion. Knowing that we will never be thirsty. We will never be hungry. All the righteousness we need has been given to us in Christ. So, Father, help us uh, use this time, use the words that have been preached today, use this table to remind us that joy is ours now. Rejoicing is ours now. Praise is ours now. Hope is ours now because of the word that became flesh, dwelt among us, lived the perfect life, died in our place. And we've been united to him and. We will never hunger or thirst again. Father, we praise you during this time. So as we come to the table, do good things in our hearts. Continue your steadfast love to us and your righteousness to to us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.